0: This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story. Written and narrated by New York Times best selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold.
1: Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts, and I am here joined in the studio today by my uh, colleague, Philip Bethencourt, who is the brand new pastor at Central Church in the Bryan College Station uh, area (laughs) in in Texas, and uh, we have served uh, together for... Coming up on 15
0: years. 15 since 2006. Years. Wow. Can you believe that?
1: 15 years. So uh, I wanted to uh, talk to Philip about a number of uh, different issues uh, today, but one of those things is uh, the issue of college ministry, and the reason for that is when I first met you in 2006, uh-huh. was it? Uh, you were doing college ministry right. at this very church that you're yes. now uh, pastor of. And now you're going to be in place, one of the largest uh, universities uh, in the world, students going out all over the place. And I think there are a lot of people who are uh, sort of apprehensive when they think about if they're parents, they're thinking about my kids going off to college, or if they're students and they're thinking, you know, what what is it going to look like for me in terms of my spiritual life and following Christ uh, on campus? So you were doing college ministry then and then came on with me as a student and an intern and in a thousand other capacities until serving as executive vice president here at the RLC with me for the past 7 years and in that time a lot of work done that relates specifically to college students, parents of college students, future college students and others and so when you think about that and you're just you're thinking about the sorts of the sorts of people that you're going to be ministering to in every age Bracket. You've got senior adults, you've got people who are uh, empty nesters, you have people in every uh, capacity. But specifically in terms of being in a college town and a university community, what do you see as the opportunities that are there for for Christian witness, well, and what still, are the drawbacks?
0: I still remember the first time you came down to Central. Uh, we had you come and speak at our college ministry, and that happened on a Wednesday night or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I remember for the first time. Ever At that point, we decided, hey, you know what would be a great idea is let's have communion as part of the college <laughs> yes. ministry event there. And yes. I asked you before we started if you wanted to help uh, to administer the <laughs> bread and the cup, and you said, no, I'll just let y'all take care of that.
1: For those of you who are of <laughs> other denominational uh, backgrounds, the the Baptist tradition... Uh, has never been one to see communion as being a college ministry yes. event until but, recent, very recent. That year. was
0: uh, ratified to me when I sat in your <laughs> systematic theology three course lesson a year later, yeah. and when we got to the Lord's Supper, I was like, "Oh my gosh!" The first time I met him, we did exactly the thing he's telling us was a huge. You, mistake you were showing to Rob do.
1: Bell videos too. I didn't say anything about that.
0: We've come a long way. And that's exactly why I love the opportunity to do ministry in a college town, is you get the chance to help students do exactly that, who are passionate about what it looks like to follow Jesus, but looking for a way to make that faith their own now that they've moved out of the uh, church setting they grew up in and the family life, whether that was good or bad, now is a scenario in which... Uh, the whole dynamic changes. And the two things that are really formative for college students when it comes to shaping their faith is, uh, number one, helping them to integrate their faith with every aspect of their life. College is where the Bible came alive to me. It's where I saw it as uh, one story centering on Jesus, and I Learned from a pastor uh, like Chris Osborne, who is a faithful expository preacher, to understand what the word means but also how it relates uh, to everything that I do. and so helping that integration happen is a, an essential dimension. but then the other ingredient is not just to help them in the process of integration but also intergenerational connections so Ooh. one one of the things I particularly love about central now that I'm getting reconnected with it 15 years later, is how intergenerational it is. There's a thriving body of young families with young kids, there's legacy adults that are in the sunset of their ministry alongside of college students. It's not just a college church like it felt at some points in the past. And so to have that interconnectivity so that you can have a Titus two women's type ministry with older women yeah. investing in youngers and a First Timothy two model of discipleship and helping people to not just understand what it looks like to follow Jesus now, but what that should look like in every stage of life in the future. Mm,
1: that's hard to do. Uh, Because there aren't a um, lot—there are a lot of places that I've seen that have had college ministries that are sort of apart uh, from everything else. But to have a place where the college students are really formed into a family uh, structure within the congregation, I think sometimes churches don't know—don't think that college students would want that.
0: Right. Or they think it might be a distraction. They're not not the ones that give— or they, we yeah. only have them for a short period of time. If you think of it simply in utilitarian uh, forms, they may not be the most strategic place to invest because you pour into them for a season, and just as they are able to make a return on investment in the church, uh, they're going off to somewhere else. But that's just the, the wrong way of thinking about it. One of the things I love that J.D. Greer talks about through their focus on students and out in uh, Summit Church is that they're more concerned with their sending capacity than their seating capacity. Mm. And one of the amazing legacies of Chris Osborne over the years at Central is, I bet that church has sent more students to seminary and off to the mission field and in ministry than just about any from around the state of Texas. It's been an amazing legacy, and that's been because the church historically has been committed uh, to investing so that we can raise that generation up and send them out. Mm. Yeah. What— what do you
1: think are going to be challenges for students who are going off to any sort of, of maybe even the University of Texas? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> How much time do we have if we want to talk about challenges in Austin? <laughs> uh, what, what are challenges that you think students might face now that would be different? than when you were doing uh, college ministry at Central back in 2005, 2006.
0: Well, it strikes me. I, I remember when I was coming through school, uh, uh, the questions uh, were just emerging about uh, issues like Internet pornography. I, mm-hmm. I can think of back in those days, we all had desktop computers and the christian guys i knew would all commit to leaving those out in the common spaces in their houses Mm -hmm. or apartments to reduce risk towards temptations well now that whole dynamic has changed when you can carry around access to that anytime you want it anonymously in your Mm -hmm. pocket and there are those challenges uh certainly the landscape has shifted when it comes to sexual orientation and gender identity questions Mm -hmm where not only has the culture moved, but also uh, the church has increasingly softened in some corners on this, especially amongst that age demographic. So, mm-hmm. uh, I th- But I think when you boil it all back down it it returns to those core questions that we've been trying to address in the ERLC all along, which is uh, those issues of kingdom and identity. What does the kingdom of God mean mm-hmm. for any issue that might come up in life, and how does my identity in Christ and the way that God sees me through Him shape the way that I'm called to live in this certain scenario that I may be facing at this time?
1: Mm. Yeah, you think about some of the things that previously probably would have seemed sort of futuristic that now everybody who's going off to college is, is facing and, and, and grappling with. And who knows what, 10 years from now, uh, you'll be facing it. Texas A&M and, and other yeah, universities. Yeah, we
0: might be able to supply you some new ethics final Maybe exams. So. Based on, Maybe some so. Maybe encounter
1: My ethics final exams have a distressing tendency to come true quicker <laughs> than what I uh, anticipated that they would. Now, over the past seven years, uh, not to mention over the past 15 years, but over the past seven years, We've been involved in all sorts of cultural issues working together from, you mentioned sexuality and gender identity, to uh, life uh, issues, to sexual abuse uh, issues, to persecuted church issues, and so forth. How do you think that some of the things that you've been working on in terms of those cultural issues will impact the way that you you, you are as pastor there at Central?
0: Well, I think when we look back on the time I've had with you at the ERLC, we see a pattern where the ERLC has been at its best when we've been able to turn moments into movements. Uh-huh. And what I mean by that, just think back the last few years in the lead up to Obergefell, everybody was searching for answers about how to navigate the issue of same-sex marriage. And we were able to put on that 2014 National Conference mm-hmm. and change the conversation about that. I think about... In 2018, you had the moment of MLK 50, uh, mm-hmm. that the, recognizing the assassination of Dr. King. We were able to turn that into a conversation about race and racial unity that made a huge difference. Uh, uh, in more negative ways, we've been grappling with the sexual abuse crisis mm-hmm. in the SBC and our own failures as a denomination to confront that. And we could have been championing that for years prior to it, but the moment— Almost was a catalyst to start a movement. And I'm hopeful that those types of experiences that we've seen play out here can also translate into the pastoral world. You think about uh, when a family experiences the death of a loved one and that moment forces them to a crisis of faith. Are they going Mm to? turn from God or lean into him you think about uh, when a college student gets a phone call that uh, from dad that says hey i just wanted you to know from me that your mom and i both agreed to part ways and we're going to be uh, seeking a divorce over the next couple months and the devastation that comes after that the tendency is to think of the process of sanctification as one steady march towards conformity to christ when oftentimes it hinges on these moments that when you have in community and effective pastoral leadership and discipleship in people's lives, they're able to shepherd them towards growth in those moments rather than setbacks, and I hope to see that same type of pattern emerging in a church context in the future.
1: Hmm. Now, one of the things coming out of the sexual abuse uh, issue that we've been working on, I've, I've been thinking about this a lot this week because I was talking to separately a group of sexual abuse survivors who are some of the most remarkable people that I've ever met and have been able to really form in working together on this issue uh, some real relationships. When you think about some of the people that you have encountered, especially in terms of of sexual abuse, what have you learned from them that that maybe you wouldn't have known otherwise if you were just uh, starting over? uh,
0: I, I can look back at story after story of people, and the common term that comes to my mind is just courage, where they were mm-hmm. willing to take a step at great risk to their own well-being for the sake of themselves or for others, uh, whether that's, I think, front of mind for me is a, a wonderful woman like Susan Cadoni, who yeah, when we announced great. our efforts with the Sexual Abuse advisor Group, we didn't know her, never heard of her. She saw it took a first step and reached out and said, hey, I would like to share my story with y'all. And we spent an hour on the phone together listening uh, to her share her story. And then she took that first step of courage and that beget future steps where she was willing to come on stage with us last year at the convention and share her story there and and write for us and be a part of our leadership council. And, uh, It would be very simple for somebody like her or some of the other courageous survivors that we've encountered uh, to turn inward on themselves, uh, to reject the Lord as part of this, and to take that suffering and uh, have it eat them from within. Mm -hmm. And instead, there's just been courageous moment after moment that we've seen where they have instead responded in ways that they're stepping out in faith, and God has met them, and that's led others to be able to do the same thing and that that courage can be contagious in mm-hmm. that sense
1: you know one of the things that you are really good at among you know i could I could list off things that could have us going all night long, but uh, one of the things that you're really good at is uh Coalition building and and getting people into a room who ordinarily wouldn't um, be in a room together. And I remember really early on, after I was elected and you came uh, here with me, uh, we were in a room gathering some of the the most uh, influential religious liberty uh, leaders from every denomination. And you came in and presented. And I remember I told Maria, my wife, that night there was such a I had such a sense of Pride in sort of watching you go and bringing these, these people uh, together uh, at that. And I think that that's one of, among many, gifts that God has given you that is really going to be unbelievably powerful in the context of local church. And I even—somebody I, uh, texted me, another former student texted me last week and said, I'm just checking on you to see how you're doing with Philip leaving. And I said, you know, the problem is I really don't think of it as Philip leaving hmm. because you predated the ERLC, we will postdate the ERLC. And so, I mean, from, I remember when your first child was born in the middle of an ice storm and we were frying shrimp in the uh, apartment That's when right. he was sitting in a, in a little case on <laughs> yes. the on the floor. Some of the
0: best shrimp I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I
1: mean, so I I, I think of it. Uh, I don't. I just don't. He said this person said something about are you sort of grieving the post Bethencourt era in your life? And I said no because I'm not facing the post Bethencourt <laughs> uh, era in my life, but. I think anybody who is, we're just shifting around locations, but what I think that maybe people who listen to this all the time might not know is that part of what, when I think of just sort of the things that I have gratitude to God for, it is for people that God has put in my life over the long, long term, not only to be able to pour into and to serve together, but also to be able to see over the whole trajectory and to see what it is that God has done. So I felt bad when you came to me, when Central contacted you, and I said, you've got to do this, because I told my wife later, get him out of here. He, he probably thinks that I was, you know, but... I was just like, this is, this is, this makes so much sense. And um, I just wasn't seeing you as ERLC president. I was seeing you as you and me as me. And I think that that's one of those things, if people have never been able to sort of serve together over so long that you actually get to see those things that God has in, you see them there. And potentiality, but then to see them play out, it really is one of the things I'm just especially grateful to God well, to like get to see.
0: One of our favorite theologians, Dolly Parton, says, you can't make old friends. You can't make old friends. That's exactly <laughs> and that's, right. that's what's been great about being with you for these 15 years, and part of why I have such a heart for the kind of coalition building you were talking about. When my dad was in the oil business, rising to the highest ranks— at Chevron, he always kept a leadership maxim on his desk that it's amazing what you can accomplish if you don't care who gets the credit. Mm-hmm. And that's really been the heart behind what we try to do at the ERLC, where we we have constantly sought to bring together like-minded people who, who can collaborate on a host of issues, whether it's religious liberty, or pro-life subjects, sexual abuse— or even just SBC leaders, and my guiding philosophy, as you know, is when you get good food and good people together, good things happen. (laughs) And uh, most of the time we went into those not with an agenda saying, we want this particular thing to come out of this particular meeting. Mm -hmm. It's that if you can form weak ties between people that would not naturally have alignments then over time, those are going to strengthen, and good things are going to emerge over that period of time. And yeah. that's been one of the most encouraging things to watch over the last few years at the ERLC.
1: When you were first starting out as intern and were in my preaching class, one of the things that that we laugh about all the time is you all had to do a videotape preaching live, <laughs> and you preached in front of a nursing home audience at a table where the ladies that were there were all Asleep. asleep, I'm not sure, all living, but some of them asleep, and you preach just as enthusiastically as as if you were at Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. And so uh, I, I, I just relish seeing what God is going to do in your preaching ministry uh, from that until we've come here. a long way, a long the way. other
0: thing I remember about that preaching class is you had us all go around the room the first uh, session and say, What preacher has been most influential for shaping mm. your perspective of preaching? And you remember this, I'm sure. Out of a room with 25 guys in there, there were only two of us who mentioned a live human pastor mm. that they had actually sat under their ministry, yeah. everybody else was podcasts and videos. And I was one of those, two. It was Chris Osborne. Uh-huh, he's yeah. been a huge mentor to me. He was there when I was called to ministry. He was there to do premarital counseling and, and marry Cammy and me, and he mm. set me on that type of trajectory. And I'm just excited to start the next chapter of the church and keep that legacy that he's left behind going after those 33 incredible years of ministry. Mm.
1: Well, I'm proud of you and grateful for you, and I think uh, God's going to do remarkable things uh, in your ministry at Central uh, Church. I think that we're going to be praying and cheering that God's going to bless you and, and send you on. So thanks for being with Thank us today you. on Signpost. This is Russell Moore. You've been listening
0: to Signpost.